could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. I never go home, those, those, those boys. Good morning and welcome to the final episode of the current series of Second Captain Sunday. Oh, Mike David here with Murph. Hi, Murph. Hi, Owen. And we're going to be crossing over very shortly to Las Vegas, where Ken Early has witnessed what the man from Sky Sports described on the pay-per-view broadcast as a sporting one-off mega attraction. <laughs> and you thought there were no more words. Ireland's Conor McGregor, UFC superstar, making his professional boxing debut against Floyd Mayweather, one of the greatest boxers of all time, in one of the most hyped sporting events of all time. If you're up at 10 a.m., I'm guessing you might not have been up at 5am or so watching it. So a very quick summary. McGregor lasted a lot longer than most people expected him to, but the longer the fight went on, more it looked like a novice fighter against a man who has, after all, won all 49 of his previous bouts. And the referee stepped in during the 10th round to wave it off. McGregor seemed remarkably happy for a guy who'd just been beaten, though, Murph. Cash in the bank, I guess. He certainly wasn't humiliated in any way, wasn't knocked out or knocked down and seems to have won some new fans. Yeah, not only did he seem very content in the ring afterwards, uh, his dub accent went into overdrive (laughs) afterwards when speaking to Showtime. Would you like the box again? You see what happens, I don't know, we'll have two titles to defend, I don't know. I'm having a buzz floating around, anyone wants to not give me a shell. (laughs) (laughs) That was my highlight of the fight. That's good, if you're watching the fight or event to give it its more accurate title, let us know what you thought, 51551 or tweet at Second Captains. Now if you have even a passing interest in watching big time sport on TV, you're going to be familiar with our guest this morning. She's fronted some of the UK's most iconic programmes like Grandstand and Today at Wimbledon. She was a superstar of the BBC's presenting team during the London Olympics, awarded a BAFTA special award for her service as a television, one of our favourite broadcasters anywhere in the world, the brilliant Claire Balding, is on the show today. Murph, what does Claire have to do to make a last-ditch claim to be our greatest non-sports person, sports person of 2017? I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Okay, here it is. Our This Sporting Life leaderboard, as it stands, from 7 to 1 uh, for this season is Blind Boy from the Rubber Bandits. Uh, on 42 points 7th and last place Maeve Higgins is 6th with 72 points Adam Hills is next on 82 last week's guest Tom Von Loller is 4th on 83 points Pat Short is currently in the bronze medal position on 87 points Nikki Byrne is on 87 and a half and top of the tree is Dorothy Cross on 88 points and that's the score Claire Balding has to beat this morning she's got a chance in all on well she does yeah Claire Balding will get her chance to go to number 1 after we go straight to the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas to check in with Ken Early hi Ken how was your night at the greatest event in combat sports history (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah good good night I suppose it was uh, an interesting thing to watch I don't think it was as great a fight as uh, as the organisers are saying it was, I think there was an element of Floyd pulling the strings, kind of, um, the fight was, a, I think the spectacle was a bit of a puppet in his hands, you know. I think for three rounds he kind of kidded everyone and let everyone believe that something might be in the offing here. Only the first round he took a... He took a fairly heavy uppercut at one point, and you thought, really, could this really be about to happen? You know, this scarcely believable story of Conor McGregor having taken a shortcut right to the top of boxing from, you know, not being really good enough to make it in boxing in Ireland a few years ago. Um, Is is he going to complete this unbelievable story by uh, defeating Floyd Mayweather? No, as it turned out, Mayweather had more than enough. And, And if you look at the statistics, I mean, Mayweather... In the first three rounds, didn't really do anything. He was he was uh, he threw twenty punches in total in those first three rounds. I mean, this is a guy who threw thirty nine 
punches on average per round in his career. So 28, he wasn't doing anything. He was just standing there and watching and waiting. And as he explained later, uh, allowing McGregor to tire himself out with big shots and then simply from, from there taking over. I mean, the fourth round, I think it was 31 punches, so more in the fourth than in the previous three put together, which I think shows you the sort of control that he had. The whole thing was happening at his terms. Even the first couple of rounds, which, you know, one of the judges gave the first three rounds to McGregor, the other two only gave the first round to him. Um, you know, you, you, you had the impression maybe this is going to be a fight, but it really wasn't. It was, it was Floyd Mayweather in control, really trying to, be, you know, you got the impression he could pick his moment to win the fight. He tried to win it in the ninth, didn't quite happen for him, but in the tenth, it happened. I mean, he said he explained afterwards that was exactly his game plan. You know, it was, it was simply let him tire himself out, uh, take him down the stretch, do what we do best, as he said. And you know, there was a huge, there was a huge gulf in class there, uh, which meant that there wasn't really a huge amount of jeopardy. I think. I mean, you, sitting watch it was odd. To, you know, so much hype, so much hype. The combat sports event, the greatest combat sports event in the history, and all that nonsense. And it was actually one of the flattest uh, atmospheres I, I think I've experienced at a, at a big time sporting event. There was so few Irish fans actually here. There was the stadium was three quarters full because the tickets were so overpriced. It was whole swathes of the stadium that were completely empty of fans. So Irish fans, all those thousands of Irish fans who travelled over, just went over, I guess, uh, decided they'd they'd spend their money on Vegas, they'd spend their money on the hotels and the gambling and that, but they'd probably just watch the fight in the boozer. Yeah, thousands and thousands and thousands of Irish fans in in Vegas. I mean, I was here at the the weigh-in on Friday, and there was thousands of Irish fans in the stadium, thronging the stadium for this weigh-in, but the weigh-in was free. Um, (laughs) The... uh, the actual fight itself, there was, it looked like a few hundred. I mean, you could hear there was an occasional ole ole, but you looked around, there weren't there weren't sort of those banks of Irish fans that you would see at McGregor's um, fights in the UFC. Um, it really didn't live up, uh, in my opinion, to the building. I thought there was a, there was a real, between between Floyd sort of, and Floyd even said, you know, he said, look, for, uh, 49 wasn't too good for the fans, referring to his own fights. 48 wasn't good enough. 48 referring to the, the Manny Pacquiao fight, which you know was which killed pay-per-view sales and boxing for years because it was so boring. Uh, <laughs> he said, I wanted to put on a bit of a show. Now, Floyd Mayweather, who has never cared about the fans, and I think actually takes a perverse delight in boring people as he takes their money, is, is suddenly saying that he, was, he wanted to give people a bit of a show. I think that tells you... What it tells you everything about the kind of threat he felt Conor McGregor posed. Yeah. And uh, yeah, very controlled, uh, very dominant performance by him, I thought. I was surprised by how much some people seemed to love it, particularly in the US. Bill Simmons, one of the top broadcasters there, tweeted, and this is typical of a lot of, a lot of people, kudos to McGregor, he did an excellent job, ran out of gas, that fight was way better than I ever imagined, compelling. Uh, so that was that, that's the thought of some people, maybe not, not big boxing fans, I would imagine. But McGregor himself seems to be happy enough in defeat. We played a clip of him in the ring afterwards. How was he in the press conference? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely delighted. <laughs> <laughs> he came in swigging whiskey, a personal brand. Personal brand of suits as well. He says he's sending his auditors in like sharks to count all the money. We're in the counting phase now, counting up what he's got from pay-per-view, merchandise and so on. You know, he's saying if, if, it, if it did Manny Pacquiao, Floyd Mayweather numbers, then he'll, he'll make over 100 million. He's off to Ibiza, I think. Um, to go to the wedding of a friend. He, I mean, he, he was in, he was a bullion. He was euphoric. 
He was delighted. I think maybe that the, the last the, the fight was maybe weighing on him a little bit. The fact that he had to go and fight Floyd Mayweather, there was a risk of humiliation. He didn't really get humiliated. He lasted ten rounds. You know, I mean, you can build a case for his for for the fact that he actually put up a quite quite a good performance there. In some senses, he did. You know, I mean, you, you see people putting in statistics. Well, he threw more punches than Manny Pacquiao. And that's well, he landed more punches than Manny Pacquiao. That's that's true. Uh, he did, but you know, I think Floyd Mayweather was a bit more <laughs> was a bit more on his game that night. I think Floyd Mayweather, you know, he didn't want to lose any rounds to Manny Pacquiao. Lose those rounds, he might not get them back. I don't think he was worried about giving away the first three rounds uh, tonight. You know, so it's it's a difficult one really to compare. You know, it's a funny thing. Conor McGregor has fought in the biggest fight that there'll be in the world this year. There's a big, you know, there's this sort of debate about him in Ireland all the time. It's like, why don't you know, why is Floyd, why does Conor McGregor not to get the credit that he's due? Why are the begrudging Irish not willing to, you know, accept how great his achievement is? And I actually think this fight is only going to make that debate worse and more divisive. Because anybody who, who wasn't convinced by McGregor, who wasn't convinced by this fight, who, who thought that, that there was an element of, of nonsense to the whole thing, that it was, that it was a made-up kind of a confected fight that should never really happen, all those people have lots of evidence from that, that in fact that they were right. Uh, and they'd be looking at this sort of McGregor fans and going, you people are so gullible. But on the other hand, I think that's just going to aggravate the, the McGregor fans more because, you know, it's a case of people will say, look, he, you know, he's so brave. He, he went out there, he did better than Pacquiao, you know, all that. And, and still the critics, uh, the critics and begrudgers rain down hating him. So it's, it's only going to get worse. All right, Ken, listen, thanks for now. Don't go back to your hotel to bed just yet, if you don't mind. We're going to check back in with you before we go. Ken's in the T-Mobile Arena in Vegas today. That's there a little something for all of you people who haven't been up since 3.45 this morning. Text us on 51551. Tweet at Second Captains. Claire Balding is on the way. This is Second Captain Sunday. You Pretty Things by David Bowie I think sets us up nicely this morning this is the final show of the current series of Second Captain Sunday now you're probably enjoying a nice lazy Sunday morning and I hate to make you feel guilty about that but I'm afraid I'm going to have to in the space of one week last month today's guest presented today at Wimbledon on the BBC anchored Channel 4's coverage of the Women's European Championships hosted a documentary about the history of women's football presented an episode of her chat show on BT Sport and traced her family history on BBC's Who Do You Think You Are and I'm certain I'm absolutely certain I'm forgetting some stuff here as well joining us from Wogan House in London Claire Balding welcome to Second Captain Sunday Good morning thank you so much for having me to be fair two of those things were recorded in January Ah, Stop (laughs) just leaves eight live broadcasts You're not not supposed to reveal the magic behind the TV here, Claire, you know, it's all, everything's fully live, I'm sure. Uh, I mentioned earlier on a couple of the awards that you've won, and I hope you're ready now to compete for the big one today. You could walk away from here, I hope you're well briefed on this, as our greatest non-sports person, sports person of 2017. I, I am so revved up for this. I'm so ready to go. I'm focused. I have <laughs> been prepping for it, training for it, uh, and I'm ready. To uh, to give you some perspective here, Claire, your uh, BBC compatriot Gabby Logan scored 88 points out of 100 last year, and got, she, she oh. got both bonus points for competing in Ireland's most popular TV show The Rose of Tralee let's see how many points you get for being a distant descendant of Oliver Cromwell which might not be quite as popular <laughs> over here but 88 points Claire that's, uh, that's, that's the very good. Uh, yeah, that's the task that's very at good. hand yes 
Listen, Claire, the Women's World Cup, Rugby World Cup final was on last night in Belfast. I know a huge audience. We don't have the figures yet, but uh, uh, there was sure to be a huge audience on ITV. Absolutely, and they moved it. And actually, what was so good about it, they moved it from one of the minor channels onto ITV One. So, and a 7.15 build up um, to 7.45 kickoff and a really, really terrific match, actually. I mean, New Zealand were sensational and had, I think, 80% possession second half and they were just far too strong. But I thought England were really, you, you know, they... They they proved what they wanted to prove. One, that they could defend their title and go all the way to the final again, which they did. So it was certainly no fluke four years ago. And secondly, I think it was just a really good advert for women's rugby. And and I felt that about a lot of the women's sport this summer. It was always going to be a big summer for women's sport. Mm. And obviously, as you mentioned, I was out in the Netherlands doing um, the Women's European Championships. And that was sensational. The final between the Dutch and the Danes. I walked with this massive crowd. They do this crowd walk thing from the, from the middle of whichever city they have it in to the stadium so this was in Enschede and it was just a sea of orange and then a few people dressed as Vikings <laughs> for the Denmark <laughs> supporters and it was so joyful and lovely and they danced and they sang and it, it you know none of the sort of threatening stuff that you are one would normally associate with football crowds and it wasn't like that at all it was just great I read that around 4 million people that was the peak viewership on Channel 4 yeah, of your we, coverage we set, set new records actually for, for women's football yeah in terms of, of people watching it and, 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 you know, obviously for England fans, it was a shame they didn't get to the final. But actually, as an advert, the final was superb quality football, which doesn't always happen no. in the final of any tournament. And, and obviously, the other big highlight was the women's cricket uh, and England winning the, the World Cup final at Lords in front of a packed ground. I mean, you know, that place was random. My nephews went to it with, with my brother, who's never been... A, you know, he's never really been a feminist at heart. But I was really, I was really pleased he took them, and they loved it. And you know, full of, you know, they now they know all the names. They're talking about Anya Shrubson, they're talking about Sarah Taylor, and they're talking about Catherine Brunt. And names are becoming more familiar to them, and that's the key. Do you get the sense that people, the public, people like your brother, for example, are finally starting to realise what they've been missing out on with regards to women's sport? I, I do, and actually the documentary that I did on, on women's football, why the FA banned women, why football banned women, actually is what the documentary was called, highlighted how popular it was at the beginning of the 20th century. And I do think, you, you know, none of us were around, but we'd have had great-grandparents who were, or grandparents even, and they would tell you that when everybody went off to fight in the First World War, and the same thing happened again in the Second World War, everything changed because it had to. So women were suddenly doing jobs that were considered male jobs. They were playing sports that were considered male sports. And lo and behold, they were quite good at it. And then it had to change back again. And that's the trouble. It's sort of, it's seen as so disruptive. And for me, I'd just like to create a society where that is not, um, you know, the shunned, where that is not something to be afraid of, where actually it's something we all benefit from. If we all do it, and we can all reach our potential in whatever field it is. To me, that is the answer to to a modern society and a much happier place to live, I think. Can you explain a little bit more about that that story that you tell in the documentary, these women who who began to take over the men's jobs, really, and and working in munitions factories and all that kind of stuff, and playing football? Were, Were they 
encouraged to play football along with the rest of it? Yes, a lot of those big factories um, would encourage their workforce to play sport because it would give them something away from the from the factory floor. But also they're, they're inhaling pretty unhealthy fumes and they're doing very hard physical work. It's very serious. It's pretty intense. They needed a break and a lot of the factory owners realised that. So at Dick Kerr Ladies, well, Dick Kerr was the big, big factory, the, the munitions um, producing factory in Preston. There was a guy there called... I think I want to say he's called Alfred Franklin. I think he was. And he said to the women who were then making all these explosives and handling TNT, and there were some pretty serious explosions in in other factories where women were killed. You know, it's dangerous work. He, He said to them, look, let's let's start doing some things in our own time very good for team build you know team bonding and and just sort of better for their for their attitude and their spirits so they started playing football and they started training a bit more seriously and he thought well I'll set up some matches with rival factories and they did and suddenly they were getting rather good and this 14 year old girl called Lily Parr was headhunted from um, down the road to come and work in the factory because they thought she'd be a good footballer and she was nearly six foot tall and she was was the star of the team and she played from the age of 14 I think until about 55 Um, she played right through and she was as big a star as David Beckham has been you you know everybody knew who Lily Parr was and at their height they were getting crowds of regular crowds of 20 30,000 and then they played this match at Goodison Park on Boxing Day in 1920 it would have been and they got a crowd of 53,000 and people turned away because they couldn't fit any more in And it was just after that that the FA in 1921 had a meeting um, to discuss women playing football and decided that it was not suitable, um, potentially dangerous, although obviously it was fine for them to be working in a munitions factory, but hey, football's (laughs) dangerous. And they banned it. And they banned women from playing on any FA affiliated, any FA pitch. They couldn't have any FA officials. So essentially, you're not able to play in the big stadiums anymore. So you can't have the big crowd, but also you're suddenly playing on park pitches with amateur officials. So everything has sort of come down a notch. And that ban, and this is the really shocking thing, that ban stood for 50 years. So it wasn't lifted until 1971. And I just find that, isn't that extraordinary? It's unbelievable. But it's unbelievable. I I had no idea before this documentary how uh, anything about this story really. Didn't didn't know there was women's football back then. Did not realise how popular it was, as you say. Mm. That match in 1921, uh, so 1920 you said, that many 53,000 fans and all this. Like this is after the men have come back from war. So yes, it seems exactly. like there was still an appetite for it. So why do you think the there FA was. actually did, did ban it? <laughs> I think that may be the problem. I think I think it was very popular. And I think also you're talking about a time when some, when women obviously were agitating for, for the vote. Some women had it, others didn't. Working class women certainly did not have the vote. And you've got women on the pitch who are b- b- showing um, a, a sort of... Um, an enthusiasm and an energy and a fitness, a physical fitness. They are they are strong women. They are playing a sport and they're doing it well. And that was a sort of dangerous image to have. They wanted women after the war to go back into the kitchen. They wanted to go back into subservient roles. And there was, there was real fear by the establishment of when all women do get the vote, what will happen? Because they didn't, they thought all women would vote the same way, you know. But but also they thought this could be really destabilising, which of course it, it could be if all women voted the same way. But all women, women don't vote the same way, um, and it's just a really interesting time. And they were worried about those big gatherings and the message that was being somehow sent out, you know, by women playing football. I mean, it's yeah. 
What happens? Uh, but I still, I actually, I do, I do, I agree with that, that it's more than just about women playing games. And that's why I feel women's sport is so significant, because I think still in countries where women don't have the vote, it is really important that they are allowed to see women achieving something. Mm. Uh, and the fact that we had the first competitor, female competitor from Saudi Arabia at the London 2012 Games, and actually that was the first Olympics where every single nation uh, had a female representative. That, I think, is a really important message i think sport is bigger than than just you know a, a game of goals and and runs or whatever you know has it taken it's, until it, now claire to do you think for the for the game in england the women's game football that is to mm-hmm. reclaim some of that prestige that you talk about yeah i do think it has actually and it and it's interesting um you know, when you look at other countries, Germany has a really good setup. Although Germany went through a period of banning women's football, and it was a bit later. It was about 1955, I think. They had very short time, but they they were a bit unsure about it. And again, the German FA said, "No, we're not having anything to do with it." But then, when they came back on board, they really embraced it. And their um, setup, it, it, they have they play mixed gendered football much uh, to a much um, later age. And the same in Holland. That that team that won the European Championships were the first generation that had played mixed gender football all the way through now that in some senses that might not be the answer but it to me it's an answer if you can have more mixed teams that that I think can benefit both sides because you you if you watch women's football it there's um remarkably little diving um and remarkably little arguing with the referee I mean not none but much less. They seem to get up as well after tackles or indeed try and stay on their feet. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I remember that used to be the case in the men's game for a certain amount of years. And so equality in sport hopefully is closer than it's been for a long time. But what about, I hope so. I think yeah. there's still quite a lot of investment that is needed. Absolutely, and, yeah. You know, and I know there's been, I, I came over not that long ago um, to, to talk about a project in Ireland actually that was mm. that was to do with making sure that there was funding for women's sport and, and that there was a higher profile for, for those that, that did want to pursue a professional career in sport. Well, what about equality in the media then? You were one of more than <laughs> 40. <laughs> you probably knew this was coming, Claire. More than 40 female <laughs> presenters who signed a letter to the Director General of the BBC, Tony Hall, calling upon him to act mm. now to sort out the gender yeah. pay gap. Were you, were you, first of all, were you surprised about the disparities when the salaries I, were first published? I wasn't actually no. because I had been saying right from the word go when this is when this comes out this will be the revelation the gender pay gap and everyone's looking at me going no it won't no I said I promise you it will and the reason I knew was because I'd worked for lots of you know I've worked for lots of different departments within the BBC but I've worked outside the BBC as well and I it was more than just a hunch I knew and I thought, I wonder how far this, you know, how deep this runs and how big the gap is. And I think that's what shocked me. I mean, it it comes to something, you know, when the highest paid presenter's agent from that one deal alone is actually, would actually on his own be higher on the list mm-hmm. than all bar, all bar one woman. Uh, you know, and that just, it's just, anyway... We shall continue as a group of BBC women because actually it's not about the 96 that are on that list. We, you know, we we are among that we are the highest paid presenters at the BBC. We're not paid as much as some of the management, but that's another story. But we are the highest paid um, on air, um, you, you know, presenters. It's about the 41,000 other BBC employees who are not on that list. And that's what I'm interested in. What we, You know, I, I think it needs to have a fair amount more um, be transparency, actually, because I don't think anyone will ever change things unless there's real honesty here um, and and a real desire to fix it quick. 
So were you relieved? Were you happy that it was all out in the open then? Um, yeah, yes, in the sense that I think it's going to accelerate things. And it's very difficult to make an argument unless you've got proof. So it, it is it is proof at the top end, certainly, and I suspect reflected further down. Um, and I hope it will make a difference. You know, I get a lot of girls writing to me or meeting me who say, I want to do your job. Now, I can't change my 20 years at the BBC or more than 20 years at the BBC. So I'm certainly not fighting this for, for, for any personal benefit. But I do want the next person who comes in and wants to do my job, I want to know they're getting treated fairly. And I want to know that they're not just being employed or put on the job because they're cheaper or because oh, we can get away with paying them less. Um, and that's where I think I think actually what it's done is created a solidarity amongst women in the media. And believe me, the BBC is not the worst offender, <laughs> certainly mm. not the only offender. I, I think a lot of the other companies are going to come under a fair amount of scrutiny and I don't know what the case is with, with you guys but you, you know whether you know what other people are paid whether there are standard levels and you get a certain amount for a certain job um, it's it's all been a bit of a muddy world the media um, and I think this will at least clear up a lot of uncertainty I hope so anyway well, it's funny, and, and therefore rebalance things it's funny Claire I think you asked about over here I think on the, on the back largely of the BBC story coming out there was a lot of focus put on RTE here and they've been heavily mm. criticised they're now in the middle of a review of role and gender equality there was a, a headline story that the top female TV news presenter over here earns considerably less than her male colleague and some controversy stemmed from that there's also this situation this is kind of breaking over the last few days where two of the national commercial radio stations News Talk and Today FM now have zero female presenters from 7 to 7. Really? Well, from 7 to 7 on weekdays. The, yes. the News Talk moved one of their presenters from a primetime show where she was presenting for 15 hours to a one-hour Saturday programme. So, like, this idea of having no female presenters at all in primetime slots, the gender equality we talk about, how is it a simple, is there a simple solution? How do you go about turning a situation like that around? <sighs> well, I think the first thing you do is flag it up and say, look, do, and, and there's... There's there's some quite effective training now in unconscious bias, and an unconscious bias is where you keep making the same decisions that that favour a certain type of person, and you don't even realise you're doing it, and and it's looking at a pattern of behaviour and choices that are made because some of the some of the excuses given will be oh well we don't have a woman who's got the experience to do that show. Yeah, because you haven't given her the opportunity to get the experience. And actually, it's not always true anyway. And then they say, well, women don't put themselves forward. Mm, I think they do, actually. And I think they get a little bit bored with being told to sit tight, you know, and don't worry, we'll get back to you. And then after two years, they haven't got back to you and you give up. Um, you know, women haven't negotiated well enough. <laughs> Why does it always have to be about... You, you know, behaving in a certain type of way. I think there are a lot of men who don't like to be aggressive, who don't like to ask for more, who don't like to push themselves forward. And I think they are disadvantaged in this setup as well. It can't always be about the one who shouts the loudest. And I'm not sure it should be. And I think it's a, it is a chance to really think about the voices we, we respect and want to hear the kind of pattern we want to create if you think of it like a, a, a painting or a tapestry or something what are the the colors we want in there and it can't all be monochrome can it it shouldn't be what about on-air quotas yeah quotas is a is an interesting one i'm not against quotas because i think quotas sometimes are the quick solution and you get to a point where you don't need quotas anymore and then you take them away and and to me that that isn't a bad um, way of just saying right this is what it's going to be we need at that. and and gosh in the city there's in the city of London there's a thing called the 30% club which is just about trying to get 30% uh, on boards a 30% rep, uh, representation of women 
30% is not a particularly ambitious target, but even if you had a target, as you say, with the all-male lineups of 30% female, that would, you know, that's not a major revolution, I don't <laughs> think. But that would seem to me to be a perfectly fair starter target. And ultimately, obviously, you're looking for a 50-50 aim at the end of it all. Just a, a last quick one on, on the BBC side of things there. Mm. That's supposed to be somewhat awkward talking about a company that you work for. But have you been, have you guys been, after writing that letter, I know Tony Hall wrote a response. Uh, I don't know what's happened since then, how much you can talk about it, but have, you been, have you been brought in? Uh, yeah, it, n- not yet, but it's all about to happen, yeah. Okay. Um, because because the BBC shuts down in August, <laughs> everybody goes away. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, nothing happens again until September. But yes, it is, it, it is, we are, we are about to move to the next stage if you if you see what I mean Good to hear Alright Claire we've already got a bit of a sense of what has made you one of the top broadcasters around but I'm not sure how many of our listeners are aware of your achievements as a champion amateur jockey will it be enough to make a late charge for the title here on Second Captain Sunday find out next as we uncover this sporting life of Claire Baldy Radio 1 Second Captain First Captain whatever I never got on those, those, those boys you're listening to Second Captain Sunday with Owen and Murph. Hi, Kieran. Hello, right on. Ken is in Las Vegas this morning, where he watched Conor McGregor last as far as the 10th round of his much-hyped much hyped mega fight with Floyd Mayweather. We'll cross back over to Ken before the end of the show. 51551 is the number to text. If you want to tweet us, we're at Second Captains. Our final guest of the current series is a giant of broadcasting, but like most people who end up in sports media, she once had dreams of being a top-level sports person, except in your case, Claire Balding, you did a pretty good job in achieving some of those dreams. Take us back to your early days, please. Horses were obviously there from day one for you. Yes, pretty much. I was born in a stable. Not not, <laughs> not actually, but, you know, I, I, I do think when the doctor picked me up, they probably thought, my God, those long ears and that long tail, that's a bit strange. <laughs> I'm very much born into a horsey family. My dad was a racehorse trainer and the best horse he trained was called Mill Reef, who won the derby in 1971 and became a bit of a superstar. Um, and he was obsessed with, with racing, but also with all sports. So my dad was a very good all-rounder. He was a good cricketer, not a bad tennis player. He was a good rugby player in his time and had played for for Bath um, and therefore was always watching sport and that meant if I wanted to have a conversation with my father I really had to know what was going on because that's all he wanted to talk about (laughs) so you you know you learn your sports history pretty quick and you and you understand the rules of most games I do remember him drawing out the fielding positions in cricket because I couldn't get my head around it and him explaining exactly where everybody was and what they did Um, so he he was pretty he wanted me to to be interested and, and I was but yeah riding I pretty much did from before I could walk I fell off and broke my collarbone at two and a half two and a half and that was, hang on you fell off a horse yeah, at two and a half and I fell off my Shetland pony yeah right. yeah two and a half but that was really good because dad said that we had to to be a proper jockey he said you had to break your collarbone and fall off a hundred times mm-hmm. and he actually he didn't break his collarbone until he was 50 something and I was like way ahead of the game because I was only two and a half and then my brother and I would start falling off on purpose every day <laughs> 10 times a day to try and get to 100. And then he said that didn't count, which is really upsetting. Murph, so there are fallen points. off a lot. We were good at falling off. I have to say, there are <laughs> points being uh, being added to the tally as we speak there. This is quite something. I heard you did a really good interview a couple of years back on Desert Island Discs and you talked about part of the reason, you've touched on it there, I think, but part of the reason that you worked so hard to become a jockey and to try to be really good at it was because of your father, because he was interested. He said that was the first time yes. I'd done anything that he was interested in, which sounded quite poignant, really. 
Yeah, I mean, I think he just didn't... Well, I played lacrosse at school and he didn't understand lacrosse. Um, and my brother was playing rugby and cricket and he understood that. So he would go and watch my brother play matches. He wouldn't come and watch me, which is all right. I mean, you know, I was a bit upset. But yeah, the right... And he wasn't interested in the eventing or the show jumping at all. He Every time he came back, he'd just say, well, did you win? And, and it's really difficult to win at eventing, really difficult. You'll come back and finish sixth and you're thrilled. And I go, no, but look, Dad, I finished sixth. And he went, well, it's not winning, is it? <laughs> that was that conversation over. But with race riding obviously I'm riding I was mainly riding horses trained by him and of course he's then invested and interested Um, but the very first race I rode and I got beaten a short head and actually I thought I'd won and I hadn't Um, and he and I came in grinning I was so excited it was like the biggest thrill and I had mud all over my face it was a really wet horrible day at Salisbury and I came back and I went oh that was fantastic and dad just looked at me and said what were you doing you left that far too late because I came from a mile back in the race and and then I was like oh this is serious because there's prize money at stake people have had bets on these races it's not like you know this isn't pony club Jim Carner anymore this is serious so I you know watched the video back with him and it talked about all sorts of things and positioning in a race and timing and the two weeks later I went and rode the same horse up at air and I made all the running and and hung on in front to win so then he was really pleased and actually that first season that I was riding I won a car and I couldn't even drive Mm -hmm. I won a brand new red mini and I couldn't drive and I hadn't passed my test. And I, the, the, the way this competition had worked out, me and another woman had, had shared it. So she took the car home from the races that day, her car, and I waited for one to get delivered into our local sort of garage in Newbury. And I'd learnt to drive in my mother's Golf. And you know, and you know now that different cars have a different shift stick system. Some you go straight up for third and others you go across for third. Well, hers went straight up for third. I get in this Mini to drive at home. It's brand new. From, from the garage and I can't get it out of second gear because I can't find third because I don't realise you meant to shift over so I drove it home in first and second gear oh. like over revving you know how you're not meant to over rev yeah, yeah. oh no anyway it was a brilliant car F661 MTF oh. that, was that, that was the number plate oh the memory yeah Brilliant. Mm, love the, that car. So th- was that a big driver for you? Because it does sound like you wrote a book a few years back and mm. you're, it was fascinating in terms of how you portrayed your father and your relationship with him. What Was he tough on you and was that part of your, your drive? Yes. To, he was, yeah. Yeah, I think he was. He was pretty tough, actually. Yeah. And not in a... He, he probably doesn't realise that he was. He, he, he doesn't know that there would be any other way to be. Um, but he is has was and is incredibly good in difficult situations so when things go wrong he is better much much better than when things go right you know like really wrong like you're really upset because something terrible's happened a horse has died or you know or a relationship has broken up or um you, I, the first time that i thought i was going to win the championship i got beaten in the very last race by the one person that 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 could beat me and he was fantastic after it, after it. And just really, you, you know, he, he can be brilliant in, in certain situations. But I do think he's very exacting. He's, he demands an awful lot. He got, I remember him getting furious with me once for sunbathing. I was riding in an evening race at Chepstow. And, and it was a really nice day. So I was sitting outside reading a book. And he came out and shouted at me. What the hell do you think you're doing? I said, Dad, I'm just enjoying the sun. Get back inside. You could get sunstroke. And it turned out the reason he said it was he'd done it once and got sunstroke. 
and and therefore how could I do that on a day that I was riding in a race <laughs> yeah I thought he was being totally over the top but it was based on you know his own experience and it was because I was heavier as well it was quite difficult I was constantly having to sweat to keep my weight down and he would ask me every day how much do you weigh which is not what most fathers do to their mm. daughters um, but he needed to know because could I make a certain weight to ride in a race on the Friday but it all came round to, to really a glorious ending because when I did win the amateur championship the prize was your weight in champagne Get in. Get in. <laughs> Being about a stone heavier than everybody else was fantastic. <laughs> what is an impressive? It's at least another case and to case and a half of champagne. It's brilliant. Oh, the stats I have in front of me here, Claire. We've been in contact with the British Horse Racing Authority, who tell us that you rode seventy-two races and had seventeen winners, mm-hmm. which sounds impressive. Does that does that sound right? Yeah, that is right. Yeah, that's yeah, it's quite a high strike rate actually. It really so is. Yeah, twenty percent, bit more than twenty percent strike rate. Yeah, and I didn't ride for very long, so I only rode for about two and a half seasons when I was seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, and then I was off at university. And by then, I was doing other things, and I was rowing, and rowing didn't really fit with race riding because rowing, you're trying to bulk up, and your shoulders are getting big. And I remember my grandmother saying to me at the end of my first term, she said, "Oh." Well, I can see you're a boaty. <laughs> Suddenly I've got these big shoulders on me. And I enjoyed it. I was absolutely terrible, but I did enjoy it. That issue of, try- um, of, 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 of trying to keep your weight down, as you talk about there, Claire, mm. to be a jockey, it sounds quite gruelling. And considering the usual teenage issues that every teenager has, it sounds like quite a lot for somebody to take on. Yes, and, and I was very... Um, I was very unemotional about it actually I knew how much I could lose in a week and and I would set about losing it and and probably the mistake I would have made was dehydrating myself a bit too much and and your brain doesn't work quite so well when you do that I think there are better ways um of of losing weight now and actually a few years back about what just after 2012 actually after London 2012 I put myself on a much better fitness regime and diet and lost about two and a half stone and to for the most part I've kept I've kept most I have kept nearly all of it off, but but I just need to do a little bit more work right now. Um, and and I was much more sensible in my approach there. Whereas when I was race riding, I would sweat a lot. I mean, I would you know go running in a sweatsuit, come back and sit in electric blankets or sit in a sauna, you know, not drinking a thing. Um, mm. And that's not that's not terribly clever. Can I push you, please, Claire, for? a highlight of your racing career or your sporting career in general? Well, apart from winning my weight in Champagne, which which really was a <laughs> highlight, I did manage um, to win a race at Beverly um, in which I had inadvertently attempted to kill the Princess Royal. <laughs> and I and I say in, it really was inadvertently and I, I the horse I was riding jumped a, a path, a footpath that went across the track and he cut to the inside. And this was fairly near to the start of the race. And I thought we'd come slowly out of the stalls, which we had, and I thought we were last. Anyway, I cut across the rails and I hear this you know, fruity language coming from behind. And I thought, oh no, there was somebody behind me. And I remember thinking in the race, oh, well, at least it wasn't Princess Anne because she wouldn't use language like that. <laughs> and as we swung around into the straight and, and suddenly five horses going for, for the line together, it was a photo finish, blanket finish. And I was on the inside and I thought, I've just got there. I've just got there. And I came back and my mother had taken me up to, to Beverly and she was white as a sheet as I came back. And she said, do you know what you've done? I said, yeah, yeah, mum, I think I've won. And she said, I don't care about that. You nearly put Princess Anne through the rail and they're furious. So I, the photo was announced. I had one. Princess Anne was in a, a, a um, dead heat for second, actually. So she's a short head behind me. And I 
to, you know stayed outside you have to go back and she she would always change in the same changing rooms as us as all of us and I was really nervous about going back into the changing room because I thought oh no because this isn't good I've done something terrible here so I went first of all into the steward's room and this has to be the only time a winning jockey has ever said are you having a steward's <laughs> inquiry I mean how stupid are you having a steward's inquiry and they went no 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 we're not um, do you want to have a look at the film? And they showed me the film and the different angles. And they said, look, we, we think it happened too early on to make any difference. And it clearly wasn't your fault. You didn't do it on purpose. So I go back into the changing room and there is Princess Anne um, in a state of semi-undress. Big, big pants. That's all you need to know. Anyway, um, mm-hmm. and she said, she turned around and she said, so are they having a steward's inquiry? And I said, no, ma'am, they're not, actually. I, I just went in to talk to them. And she said, and why not? I said, because they think it happened too early on to make any difference. She said, too early on, too early on to make the difference for short head. And and I was then quite affronted. So I said, yes. And I wasn't about to pull up in the straight and let you win. And she <laughs> said, I'm, I'm 18 and I'm, oh God, I'm such an idiot. She said, maybe you should have done. <laughs> oh dear. So then a year later, we go back to Beverly in much, much smaller race. There's only about seven runners and she won and I was second. And as we were pulling up, I said, well done, ma'am. Happy now? <laughs> just sh- 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 shut your mouth, you know, just shut your mouth. Uh, that is... But yeah, I had some great, I did have some great experiences uh, riding and I had, you know, it was fun. Absolutely. That's an unbelievable highlight. Claire. I think we have more than enough now to move to the final stage of proceedings this morning. It is now time to find out once and for all who is our greatest non-sports person, sports person of 2017. Let us rank this sporting life of Claire Balding, please. You don't understand. I could have had class. We don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. What do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. I will hand you over now to our 2017 This Sporting Life Grand Marshal, Kieran Murphy. Right, here we go, Claire. Uh, I'm the person charged with crunching the numbers around here, and much like Ruby Walsh timing his run up the hill at Cheltenham, it's <laughs> up to me to see if you can come with a late charge and take this season's top spot from Ireland's greatest living visual artist, Dorothy Cross, on 88 points. So you've just outlined your sporting pedigree twist there. Uh, a highlight... Uh, you know, it's pretty pretty much top class, uh, the story about Princess Anne ver- being verbally abused by a member of the British royal family in the middle of a race. Uh, we'll take your word on the lacrosse, but it sounds like Formula One isn't an option. Uh, the fact that you present roughly 94% of all of the live sport happening on the planet in any given week <laughs> means you're not exactly deficient in the knowledge department either. So uh, if you'll just allow me a moment here. Go okay, on, yeah. you've scored 87 points, Ooh. good enough for third place. Uh, you have been listening to This Sporting Life. Of Claire Ball. Oh, Claire, congratulations. Round of applause, please, for Claire Ball. Gotta be happy with that. Thank you, Claire. Oh, I'm now going to have to send a text to Gabby Logan because you said she scored 88, didn't she? <laughs> yeah, she did. I'm sorry. So I'm sorry. Said, Them's the rules. Beat me. Claire, <laughs> beat me. thank you so much. You're very welcome, Owen Kieran. Thank you very much. That's Harvest Moon by Neil Young on Second Captain Sunday. And I have to say, Murph Claire Balding would have to feel hard done by there. Repeatedly throwing herself off her horses to pick up the injuries required to prove her toughness Mm. as a jockey. That's dedication for you. Yeah, it's not bad. What was the Oliver Cromwell jibe all about? Oh, yeah, well... uh, Claire seemed to understand it, so that's the main thing. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, She can trace her roots all the way back on, uh, as you can imagine. And she is, in fact, the great... And I mean great to the power of 11. <laughs> the great to the power of 11 granddaughter 
of uh, Oliver Cromwell himself. Mm. Now, there are some tweeters suggesting that I may have applied some penalty points as a result <laughs> of the Cromwell link, but I, I will never give up my, my sources. Emma has texted in, loving the show, Claire's an icon and what a role model, had no idea about football in the UK in the 1920s. Wow. Uh, tweet in here from My Lawler, who says, love Claire, her knowledge and delivery second to none, great role model for young girls. Yeah, she's a great role model for broadcasters, to be honest. Mm. Claire Balding doing live sport is is tech. Don't bother going to journalism school, kids. Mm. Just watch Claire Balding doing she, live TV. She uh, was presenting today at Wimbledon uh, yeah. uh, one evening this year and there was a fly on one of the cameras. So without breaking a bit, she said, oh, hold on a second, there's a fly on the camera. Let's go to this camera. <laughs> yeah. And the director immediately picked up what camera. I mean, it was, yeah, it's a masterclass every time she's on TV. My 17-year-old Irish aunt was one of the land girls. They worked on the farms when the men were at war. They were the first women to wear trousers because long skirts were too dangerous near machinery. She was very proud of her contribution. Good work, Claire. Everything you say now, I first heard from her 55 years ago, which is lovely. And I mentioned here for Ireland's first ever gold medal at the World Junior Swimming Championships, which is one last night in the 100 metre breaststroke by Mona McSharry she's from Grange in County Sligo this girl will be a medal contender in the Tokyo Olympics worth a shout out I don't have a name to that text but the, the shout out has been made now it was a senior Irish record as well to boot yes <laughs> not, not and she, going. Uh, she does all her training apparently in the Ballyshannon Leisure Centre so mm. from the Ballyshannon Leisure Centre to the World Junior Championships that's pretty amazing not everybody is happy with her chat with Claire Balding there Murphy, Okay, say. is this a sports show or a feminist show <laughs> asked William in Cork it's, it's amazing William that sometimes you know sports and feminism aren't totally mutually exclusive yeah it's yeah. a little from column A a little from column B this morning before we wrap things up in a couple of minutes time we do need one final word from Las Vegas I think what do you reckon Murph yeah want to hear some more okay well if you've just gotten up if you're just up and about you may not have heard that Conor McGregor lost his fight to Floyd Mayweather this morning but seems to have won a lot of new fans after lasting as far as the 10th round Ken Early in Las Vegas at the T-Mobile Arena may I ask you for a Jerry Springer type final thought please what have you learned from the months of hype and the 10 rounds of action in the ring tonight about ourselves about the world around us something profound please I don't believe the hype I suppose um, if something looks impossible seems impossible if, if lots of experts who know a lot about that area say this is not possible then that thing probably is impossible even if you've got somebody <laughs> who really really appears to believe what you say telling you no 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 this is possible it probably isn't you know we've seen a lot of uh, upsets I suppose in, in varying spheres over the last couple of years a lot of things are changing in the world very fast this this we know we were wondering if maybe there was some kind of glitch in the matrix you know that uh, the world just didn't behave the way, in the familiar way. Some of the laws that we thought were governing the world were beginning to break down. So I'd say, I want that my final thought is that miracles maybe do happen, but not very often. Thanks, Ken. Always remember that. Will do, Ken. Exactly the correct level of profundity there, considering it's so late at night in Vegas. Get yourself off to bed there and get a well-earned nap or even an entire sleep at this stage. McGregor, where are the texts I was looking for here? McGregor was well beaten by a 40-year-old great fighter who was also over a stone lighter. Well out of his depth. That's from Anthony in Temple Oak. Ray says, listening to Steve Bunce, the top boxing pundit in Five Live, he placed it in the top three boxing events in 25 years of his coverage in Vegas. Who are we to believe? Asked Ray. I'd probably believe Anthony in Temple Oak actually ahead of Steve Bunce <laughs> on this one rare occasion. But Murph, the hordes from Tyrone are travelling south as we speak. They're probably listening in their cars on the way to Croke Park, all around semi-final against Dublin. Give them something to cling to here. Right, well, I don't know that I'm going to give them a whole lot of hope, but we were speaking to Tyrone legend Enda McGinley during the week, and he referenced the 2003 Ireland semi-final against Kerry. I don't know if people remember this, but it was the game that basically birthed the phrase... 
uh, puke football. Oh yeah, yeah. And that basically that's what we need to see from Tyrone. <laughs> uh, that level of aggression, that level of near violence against their opponent. Uh, uh, so that's maybe something to think about. That uh, maybe don't expect a classic. Is what okay, I'd say. that's fair enough. James Vincent Morrow, by the way, has tweeted in and he tweeted his approval of our choice of Harvest Moon by Neil Young. Apparently, the greatest song to ever use a sweeping brush as a percussion. Because exactly why we used it. That's why it was in there. That's <laughs> yeah, it. It's got to be some sweeping brush. That's it for this morning on the show, and indeed for this series of Second Captain Sunday. Hope you've enjoyed the last few months. We've had a blast. Our final league table from eight to one, by the way. Blind Boy Boat Club, Maeve Higgins number seven, Adam Hills at six, Tom Von Lawler five, Pat Short. Claire Balding number two is Nikki Byrne and at number one amazing guest champion swimmer Dorothy Cross is the greatest Irish sports person sports person of 2017 we'll be back on Radio 1 soon in the meantime you can listen to us from Monday to Friday on the Second Captain's World Service it's member led commercial free independent broadcasting and you can go to secondcaptains.com for more details we do all that from our own studios in Dublin congratulations once again to Dorothy Cross thanks to Mark Horgan and Simon Hick who produced the series Ruth Kennington was on sound today thank you Kieran. thank you all thanks very much for listening and enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Second cap, first cap, and whatever. <laughs>